Hi, and welcome to the 77th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This episode was recorded on the 3rd of May 2023. We're talking with Mark Stain. We chat about AI as tools, the ethics of business models, writing his book, Ethics for People Who Work in Tech, the process of ethics or doing ethics, Mark's three-step process, his experience with misconceptions of ethics as compliance or roadblocks, evaluating ethical theories and universal rights. If you like this episode, you can find more at machine-ethics.net. If you'd like to contact us, you can go to hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter, machine underscore ethics, Instagram, machine ethics podcast, or if you can, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thanks very much for listening. Hi, Mark. Uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. If you'd like to uh, introduce yourself, who you are and what you do. Yeah, my name is Mark Steen. I live and work in the Netherlands. I work as a senior research scientist at TNO, which is the Netherlands Organization for Applied Scientific Research, a big organization with 3,000 people, all kinds of expertise. And um, last several years, I've specialized in um, responsible innovation and ethics involved in the development and deployment of technologies, very much a focus on uh, data and uh, algorithms and what people today would say is AI. Great. <clears throat> well, I think that leads us into our first question. So in your mind, um, obviously, we've got the book that we can talk about, which is um, Ethics for People Who Work in Tech. Um, so what is tech? What is technology in that kind of sphere? And what, by extension, is AI? Yeah, uh, as you noticed, I said what people call AI. Mm. Uh, frankly, I, I think AI is a bit of a silly term. I know people have been using it since, what is it, 1950-something with this Dartmouth conference. Um, silly in the sense that it draws so much attention to mimicking people, like it's intelligence, like human intelligence, first thing that comes to mind, and then artificial. Um, so I don't like the term so much. I would rather talk about uh, tools uh, that we can use or instruments that we can that, that through which we can perceive the world or or machines that help us do things. For example, uh, a, a spade, you don't call that an artificial hand, do you? Or, or, or a bike, you don't call that artificial legs. So why do we call these uh, machines or tools? I mean, that they're machines and tools. Yeah, I guess if, if you were going to make a rebuttal to that, um, you wouldn't have a, a spade which kind of went off and did its own digging, I guess, you know what I mean? Does the AI, does it own, does it, does it do its own? I mean, you, you give it a prompt. Well, mm-hmm. let's talk about chat GTP. Obviously sure. it's been sure. in use for, for a couple of months. You give it a prompt and it gives back more words. You give mm-hmm. it words back, it gives you even more words back. So it's like a, a word creation machine, a language juggle machine. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously uh, brilliant in what it does mm-hmm. and quite surprisingly so. Some people say it's dangerous. Some people say it's dangerous for various reasons. So there's the AGI, fear of it taking over the world. Way, way, way before that, uh, there, there are much more real risks, like um, uh, what has been described for, for, for 10 or more years, the way that algorithms uh, propagate or exacerbate existing injustices or unfairnesses, discrimination, etc. And I just, just today I read like... Um, hundreds of uh, journalist AI farms that spit out thousands of news articles uh, just to sell ads. Mm. And mm. all these articles will have disinformation, misinformation, fake news. So yeah, uh, it's not very helpful if you value uh, um, truth or news items that are true. So these are real dangers now, uh, way before we have something like AGI, we need to worry about those risks, I think. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot that we could pick apart in there, which is uh, always fun. Um, how much time have you got, you know? Um, <laughs> um, we can do part two and three. You just, yeah, 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 <laughs> just yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I think, I mean, it's one of, if you go back, way back, the original idea of the internet, right, this was egalitarian idea that you could spread information and people could share and people could collaborate and then commerce you know came on board 
And arguably, what you just pointed out there is that the internet is now more about not how you share information, but how information is monetized or commercial in some way. And that is leading to this um, point that you made about um, misinformation or dummy articles or just the internet getting taken over by loads of crap, which arguably has already happened, you know, in my mind, um, for instance. So I think it's a shame because it's, it's less about any of the the technologies per se, but the structural commercial aspect of it, you know, if there yeah, wasn't to- that commercial aspect of it. Yeah, totally agree with you. And uh, you already mentioned the book, Ethics for People Who Work in Tech, where... I consider this audience more broadly so developers, obviously, but also people who are involved in procurement or policy making or any application. So, yeah, mm. many, many people nowadays encounter uh, technology or uh, algorithms. Uh, I, I devote a couple of chapters on, on what comes before you do ethics, like business models or understandings of um, uh, well-being or policy making for well-being like GDP how good is that do we need to go beyond GDP and measure mm. things beyond economic growth yes of course according to me and according to many nowadays growing um, well-being how do we how do we understand well-being is it like how much stuff you have or is it the the, the, the relationship where you have with people uh, with or without technology so yeah there's lots of things mm you need to think about and then i think you can you can also do ethics but before it is the business model is policies is what we consider to be normal or desirable mm. but i guess you could do you could do i'm doing air quotes here you could do ethics with those things as well, like with the business models as well um, oh yeah yeah sure yeah. sure the, the thing i i wanted to point out is that uh, some of the proposals I uh, you can encounter in the book in the in the ethics part. So that's the middle part, three parts. The middle part is is, is most purely ethics. Um, uh, some of the suggestions there, for example, social media app that is different from your normal social media app. So your normal social media app, its purpose coming from its business model based on advertising is to lure people to it as much as possible, as often mm-hmm. as possible, and to, and to keep them there as long as possible. Now, you can think of an alternative design where it will ask you, hey, uh, Ben, I see you're using this. Uh, what do you want to do with it? How many minutes do you want to do this? Um, and then after that minutes has, has passed, it, it prompts you, uh, have you found what you're looking for? Otherwise, you can do something useful now rather than stay here for... For your next bit of content and you're you're scrolling through your timeline mm-hmm. and then of course somebody will say hey but then your business model needs to change and yes then your business model needs to change mm-hmm. so they're tied up the topics of um, business model and governance and ethics i mean before we get in the weeds a little bit let's go way back because we mentioned the book originally um why did you write this book what did you want to achieve with it uh and what interests me as well that you you came from industry essentially. So how what did you how, how did you get excited or interested in ethics to start with anyway? Yeah, that's a nice question. Yeah, I started with uh, working for Philips Electronics and KPN, the Dutch uh, telecom operator. Um, I have my education, my background in in Delft, industrial design engineering, and in that school, it's normal uh, to put people central and to consider technology as a uh, as a means and also to have uh, an interest in organizing the process of innovation. So that has always been my my sort of interest. People, technology as a tool, and then organizing the development of the design of the innovation process. And then um, after 10 or so years working in industry, I became interested in, uh, in ethics. I did a PhD at the University of Humanistics, Humanistic Studies in the Netherlands. I defended that in Delft. And in that, I looked at uh, the ethics that happen sort of implicitly, sort of inherently in your design process. So the designer will typically, if, if they follow human-centered design, they will invite people to the, to the office, have a talk with them, focus group, usability test, all these variations that you have. And then I was asking, how open can you be to their experiences? Or is there some philosophical hurdle that will keeps you in your, like you have blinkers on, you can only see what you're interested in. It's very hard to be really open. And then how much creativity can you have 
if there's a brief, if there's a budget. So how much room to maneuver have you? So these, I, I took this on with, with philosophy of Levina and Derrida, uh, French philosophers. Yeah, that gave me a solid basis for further exploration of ethics. So I did that in the, in the years after. Uh, write the book. During these years, um, my co-workers and clients and also partners were asking me, hey, Mark, can you help us uh, uh, with ethics? And in their mind, they had some idea of ethics as a hurdle, as a roadblock that you need to pass, or maybe even a rubber stamp that you can get if you do it well, and then the ethics is good. And I was saying to them, like, uh, yeah, but that's not the kind of ethics that I can do for you. What I can do with you is uh, organize a process. So that's where my Delft education comes through again. A process of reflection and inquiry and deliberation in which you yourself and your, and your team, and your project team, uh, put issues on the table, organize dialogues about them, look at them critically from different perspectives, and then... Uh, yeah, the third step. So is is is, is, is that you is that you continue your project. So the association that some people would have with philosophy, like okay, so you're in your armchair, you're you're doing big things and big ideas in your head only. So uh, my approach and also why why my colleagues and, and and clients find it helpful is that they can they can continue their project. That's precisely the that's precisely the idea only with a couple of questions running in parallel to their project and only with, with a couple of findings along the way in an iterative process. Hey, we can do this differently. Hey, we can do this better. Shall we improve this or that? Sorry. This yeah, is and, and then your last bit of the question. So this is how I started developing this method that I've also called sometimes sort of jokingly rapid ethical uh, deliberation as, as a nod also to agile or, or other uh, methods. Uh, yeah, and the book contains much of my my, my experience with, with doing that in practice with people and projects. Awesome, and I think in the the book you mentioned like this three step situation. So I was wondering if you could just outline your the basic vision for that and, and how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first step is uh, uh, identifying issues in your projects that may be uh, uh, problematic or they're interesting, let's call them, because yeah, some, sometimes it's not necessarily a problem, but it's interesting in a way. So identify topics that you want to study, that you feel you need to study, uh, that pay attention to. Second step is organize conversations about these topics. And then first within the project team, that's easy enough. You can integrate them in your project team meetings, but ideally also with your client, with stakeholders, also outside the organization. Uh, this borrows also from uh, human-centered design, where you, where, where you invite in uh, customers or potential customers, and also from value-sensitive design, where you will invite stakeholders with different perspectives on the topic uh, to express their values and, what, and their concerns. So that's the two steps, one, two. And the third step was this, like, uh, uh, take, it to ex take it to action, do something with it, ideally in an iterative manner. Um, Ideal also, ideal also in a in a learning uh, manner. So you try out for two months. Mm. If you do this feature differently, if you do this application differently, and then you monitor and then you you modify. That's also why I sometimes use the word uh, the the metaphor of the steering wheel. So ethics is then uh, hopefully not a barrier or a, a roadblock or a stamp, but more like a steering wheel that you can use to bring your project safely from A to B and avoid mm. collisions, stay in the right uh, half of the road, take the right exits. So steering wheel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the to me, it's, it's interesting because it sounds a lot like a combination of bits from Agile, like you said, design, like um, value-centered design, human-centered design, or what was popularized uh, by IDEO, design thinking, Mm -hmm. um, but I guess you're being more explicit with saying that we are thinking in this these terms, right? We're, yeah, yeah, but but, yeah. but 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 yeah, totally happy that you recognize this because mm -hmm. indeed this has also been my work experience. All the all the uh, the methods that you're saying, yeah, uh, yeah, broadly design thinking, yes, also. And here, of course, listeners can have different uh, ideas popping up in their head. Some people will think of design thinking, yeah, that's in a room and a whiteboard and your sticky notes. Mm -hmm. That can be a form in which you can do it. But for me, the design thinking is more an, um, a going back and forth between uh, problem setting and solution finding. 
it's also a way of systems thinking where sometimes you think about the problem, try to understand it more deeply. Sometimes you think of the solution and try it out. Um, so for me, design thinking is really at the core of the book and also of my approach. Um, but in more in that methodological manner of mm. um, not so much rushing forward to a solution, but always having some uh, options open to revisit uh, the brief, to rethink the problem, to re-identify uh, issues that you want to pay attention to. And now here, of course, if this is exaggerated, it would mean that in any project team meeting, all the options are open again. Obviously, that's not very helpful. Uh, but the other caricature would be like, you can never ask questions and it's always rushing forward. And that's also silly. So a, mm. a combination mm. of problem finding, uh, sorry, problem setting and solution finding. Um, so, so with that three-step process, there is, uh, in my mind, a lack of, of external pressures outside of that process. So, for example, um, there isn't any depiction of how legislation or governments or uh, kind of external parties can play a role in this, other than maybe being brought in as stakeholders themselves. Like if they were, if you were reaching for more stakeholders, you might pick um, different parties like that. Um, I was just wondering if if you thought that this was enough for an organization or that they um, need to situate themselves within obviously the context of uh, business, but also of citizenship, mm -hmm. of environment, of all these other uh, kind of more external pressures. And how does that kind of figure out? How do, how do you think about those things? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, they are there in the book, but you're, you're talking about really, really, really important uh, topics like uh, the GDPR that you need to comply to, your code of conduct, either of the IEEE or the ACM or some other professional organization, the something, something people within your organization, the legal people, uh, compliance people even. So yeah, they're all there, but I don't give them so much attention in the book. Maybe, maybe that's a flaw. Mm. On the other hand, I do mention them like uh, in places uh, scattered through, throughout the book. Um, possibly that is because my book is a bit of a reaction to a one-dimensional perspective that some people may have on ethics that I sometimes encounter. Like, hey, Mark, you're doing ethics. Can you help us with data protection? And I was saying, yeah, you're looking for somebody with a legal background helping you with compliance to the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation of the EU. But that's not that's not ethics. I mean, that's one slide. That's one mm -hmm. one 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 uh, piece of the pie of ethics. Um, and similar for the other things. Uh, yeah, you need to comply. You need to not uh, uh, violate the law. You need so. In the middle part of the book, I I, I discuss more at length four uh, uh, ethical perspectives. One is consequentialism. The pluses and minuses. One is duty ethics. And there, I pay some more explicit attention to uh, duties, compliance, uh, positive duties, negative duties in the sense of uh, human rights, some things you need to do, some things you need to avoid to do, uh, rights of, um, of citizens, like you were saying. And then the third one is relational ethics, fourth one is uh, virtue ethics. So the legislation bit and the compliance bit is, is, yeah, is discussed in the, in the context of uh, duties and rights. Mm -hmm. And and following on from that, um, I like the the because you had the title in there of universal duties, and I just wondered if this is it's obviously a pithy question, but is there a universal duty or ethic, it, or, or is that something that it, you feel like will ever happen? No, I don't think there are universal duties in that sense. N no, because it, it's interesting because obviously human rights is a is a declaration of intent. It's not like a thing in its own sense, like there's not a natural human right, right? There's no natural scientific law that says that something should be. Yeah, exa exactly. It's a, it's a social construct. Social yeah, you, you don't find it uh, uh, coming. I think I write somewhere like <laughs> it doesn't grow on trees. It doesn't fall from the sky. It's made up by people who were looking for ways to live together well. Exactly. Or exactly. some variation of that. Exactly. So uh, do you consider that the, the human rights is part of those kind of universal um 
ethic or universal duties essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There, there's a big yeah. overlap, I think, between uh, concerns for uh, respecting and protecting human rights or fundamental rights mm -hmm. and uh, and many of the ethical concerns that I, that I write about. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, I just, uh, you know, from a, a pure philosophy point of view, it's just an interesting question anyway. Um, what, what, what would you think? Would you be looking for some universal duty? Because we can't, can't dust it like thought experiment yeah. which rule can you think of that everybody all the time in any situation needs to follow yeah um well i think i think it depends on what you call a rule essentially doesn't it it's like the the problem that i always have with human rights is the descriptor the description of human rights is kind of open-ended a lot of it depends on your interpretation of the language yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i see what you mean um, so a couple of years ago, two years ago, I started studying uh, law at the Open mm. University, Open Universiteit in the Netherlands. And uh, I wrote a piece, I think, where it comes together nicely. Um, uh, I wrote a piece as an exercise at, at uh, ex examination of one of these courses that was on fundamental rights about Siri, the system for risico indications, system for risk indication that uh, Dutch local governments were using to find uh, fraud in citizens with social welfare, mm -hmm. uh, a sort of cousin of the infamous childcare benefit scandal in the Netherlands. Yep. And the judge, uh, two years ago, three years ago, what was it, um, decided that this is unlawful mm -hmm. because it violates Article 8 of the European Convention of Human Rights. And I'm coming back to what you just said, like, yeah, this, oh, this, 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 this right for privacy is open-ended, but it isn't because there the judge makes, uh, well, like judges do on the one mm. end or the other end. Mm. So on the one end, the government needs to put some effort in finding people because yeah. otherwise all the taxpayers' money spent on all these fraudulent people. Yeah, so we need to do something, but it needs to be proportional. Uh, first of all, it needs to be legal within mm. law, uh, legality. And then proportional and subsidiarity are the other two criteria. Are there better ways? Are there uh, less violent ways, so to say, to do it? Mm. And then he decided, well, in this case, for these applications, uh, it's not a good idea. So he forbade, he, he forbid mm. it. He, so it's a nice example, I think, of, 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 of how they come together. The realism of, of, of tax inspector people uh, using an algorithm. How far can you go? Well, this was uh, uh, too far. So mm. we stopped that. Yeah. And hopefully learn from that and hopefully that's one of the things that i want to contribute hopefully with with my work with my book is making uh the people who work on these algorithms or who use these algorithms more aware of uh of these concerns way before it's implemented way before it's actually utilized in practice mm -hmm. you you mentioned that those are all kind of um they're agreed right we're contractually obliged to the european european uh, declaration of human rights um if you're part of the European Union, for example, so there there are certain things, but they're all social contracts or social um, constructs. Uh, it's just a, you know, it's that Kant um, kind of trying to discover if there's a universal thing or a universal method. Um, it's almost like um, this kind of mathematical equation to ethics, as opposed to this push and pull reflection like i think m more in the book that you talk about this this way of thinking about ethics as discourse or reflection or uh collaboration and 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 these things rather than you know equations yeah, very, uh, you know, very much so and this may be a nice stepping stone to one of the mm. chapters that's also in the first part where i do some uh uh, uh groundwork or background i explain different types of knowledge and i invite readers to imagine in their head a, a big tree, the tree of knowledge, with four big branches. One is natural mm. science, one is social sciences, one is humanities, and one is technology. So I give technology and design its own branch, which is normally not, not done. And then I go on a bit about how are they different, uh, because they are different. The natural sciences is more the domain where, you're, where, where you talk about, like, we can come to a real equation, F is N times A, Force is mass uh, times uh, uh, what does the A stand for again? 
acceleration in English, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyways, <laughs> physics, physics with real formulas and real numbers that always work mm. in outer space on Earth a century ago. Nowadays, always the same. And social sciences, they they're a bit different already because I mean, a century ago and now is different. These other continent here, people behave differently. So there's already a bit of difference between the natural and the social sciences, and the humanities even is even more different. Uh, I think its definition of humanities is a study of uh, the products of the human mind, like all the books in theology and in philosophy and in law mm. and in art, and uh, uh, not only books, of course, also art uh, in other forms. And then technology is, is even different again, because that's not just studying, but it's changing stuff and creating stuff and, and seeing what happens and then trying out to solve well, practical problems in, in, in the real world. Mm. And then I make a sort of parallel that I hope will will help people with technology backgrounds feel that ethics is really helpful, can be really helpful. When you say, well, the work of a normative ethicist and of an engineer are very similar. They look at the world, they believe or feel or think that something is not quite right yet, yet with it. Mm -hmm. We need to do something and then they go about changing it. So the the work of normative ethics and the work of creating and using technology is very similar. And you don't you don't need count for that. It's very much I like very okay. much your characterization. <laughs> it's not high up there. It's not complicated. It's really these three steps: put your issues on the table, have conversations about it, dare to also to 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 ask silly or uneasy questions, dare also uh, to uh, to tolerate the unease that comes with it, like we're six months down this project we have two more months to go why talk now about the project brief and its assumptions mm. it's it's scary sometimes to do the work of uh, ethical reflection and deliberation yeah and, and who do you see doing this this work is it um people teams themselves enacting some of this stuff or are there um special people that have job titles or consultants or uh, other people that can be brought in. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I hope that uh, once once a reader has gone through the through the book, and also I have lots of links. There's also a website connected to it that you go to. Lots of other sources and, and videos and podcasts. Uh, they can do it themselves. I mean, yeah. I believe very much in taking small steps first, and then some people will want to get really good or even better at it. And of course, that they'll find ways to do that. But first mm. steps, you can do just. Just by this, mm. and I've actually got a another devil, devil's advocate question for you here. Um, Excellent, this is my favourite uh, thing to do. So there's this idea that um, I love that, which is kind of at odds, where everyone is a moral agent, right? So you have this um, saying in the book where, are you a technologist or a developer or a data scientist or a business person or are you making things or whatever? You're all participating, right, in this sphere you're all going to be making technology or helping to make technology or facilitating the making of technology that's going to affect people and you should be uh, an agent in that you should be aware right self-reflecting presumably um but then you also go on to say that people should be m mobilizing their intrinsic motivations in a positive direction right so uh, using their own motivations their own intrinsic uh kind of moral outlook for the good of the situation move, moving the steering wheel in the right direction let's say um but for me it, it for through my experience in my life i feel like that intrinsic um motivation isn't enough right it's um you have all these forces around you um uh, uh, money is a big one uh, but you also have social uh, other social forces um, that uh, play a part in that. And I, I wonder if, if you can talk to, you know, how you might um, kind of break through or or better understand what is, you, you know, a good intrinsic motivation rather than a maybe self, self-serving self one, maybe. Yeah, I think I remember writing that section because uh, my book was beginning to be too much critical on technology, mm -hmm. all the things that can yeah. go wrong. And am I fearful of technology? Well, not really. But sometimes I can be fearful of evil people using technology for evil ends. 
And then on the other end, I was feeling hopeful. And how can I express that? So that's where I think I wrote a bit mm -hmm. uh, that you just sort of paraphrased. Like, um, I hope to speak to the to the good that I assume is in each of us uh, to do to do well, to do good. Um, and then I like very much what you're drawing attention to. Like, there are external forces. There are social norms. Why would you ask a silly question like that? I mean, we have one more month to deliver. Why? question uh, uh, and we also spoke about like the reality of uh, many companies of uh, uh, most companies actually of course uh, making money in some sort so there needs to be a business model that works all this is there and still and still mm. I write about and I speak about um, the hope that within each of us because all these people are moral agents as well and citizens and professionals uh, the hope that they can mobilize within themselves uh, uh, motivations to do good. Now, I spoke about the, the, the four ethical perspectives. Uh, one is about pluses and minuses. I can talk more about that. One is mm -hmm. duties and rights. That, that leans towards law and legislation. Third one is relational ethics. Fourth one is virtue ethics. And virtue ethics is in a kind, uh, a kind of way special because it not only talks about the virtues of the people using the technology, like the citizens and whether the social media help App, for example, helps them to cultivate self-control or whether it corrodes self-control. That's an easy example. I can talk more about that. Mm. But virtue ethics also talks about uh, the virtues that uh, we, let's say we, as professionals, as the people involved in developing and, and deploying technology, the virtues that we need to cultivate. So yeah, hope is, hope is one of these virtues. Uh, justice is an obvious one. Uh, self-control is another one. Courage to speak up. I mean, these are some of the cardinal virtues of ancient Greece, of, of Aristotle. So coming back to your question, um, with my expression of hope that people can mobilize within themselves uh, the good, the motivation to do good, comes also the tool of virtue ethics uh, that can help people to reflect on, hey, what kind of virtues would I need and how can I cultivate them and, and, and bring them to the world, uh, bring them to expression? And that's very much also a developmental process. Well, actually, I don't know what Aristotle would say. You're born, you grow up, you learn stuff, you unlearn stuff, you educate, you get educated, you get your job, mm -hmm. and then lots of things happen in, in lots of directions. But still, you can then at any moment learn to be a bit more courageous or learn to be a bit more, uh, uh, have a bit more concern for, for justice. Yeah, so it, it, it's very much a hopeful book. Mm -hmm. Yep. <clears throat> and I guess... Um, Did I answer your question? Because it lost in <laughs> I don't think questions are here to be answered. They're just to be uh, ruminated on, right? <laughs> right, right. No, we, yeah. we, we did that. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that you, you kind of think that the virtue ethics is useful in this context. Like uh, you are really excited about that as opposed to maybe less so utilitarian or Kantism. Um, and relational ethics that is it is it because of that hopeful side of things or is there a, a process in which the the virtue ethics is is just more interesting or, or yeah. illuminating enough yeah uh, let's put them in order of uh, appearance mm -hmm. uh, the pluses and minuses for consequentialism are good i mean if there are pluses and minuses to your project that you can think of so your project will deliver something that something goes into the world and now let's talk about the pluses and minuses, its impacts, its outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very good idea. However, uh, sometimes uh, things are more difficult than at first sight. So how are the pluses and minuses distributed over different people mm -hmm. or different uh, yeah. uh, groups of people? Some of the pluses and minuses are kept out of the equation, out of the calculation. They're called externalities by economic mm -hmm. people. So yeah, the plus and minuses are a good idea, a good starting point for sure. Mm -hmm. Second one, duties and rights. Yeah, we talked about that. Uh, you need to comply to and you need to respect rights. And, and there's lots more to be said about it. And then zooming out a bit on these two, they're both products of the European Enlightenment. So we're objective. We can calculate. We're autonomous, independent individuals. We're rational. All, all this. Mm. Yep. And then the, the, the third and fourth one are a uh, reaction to it. Well, obviously, 
virtue ethics cannot be a reaction to it, but yeah. but 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 the the sort of the the uh, the growing recent attention to virtue ethics can mm -hmm. be thought of. And, uh, yeah. Anyways, relational ethics looks at, at care, uh, a combination of justice and care, because all justice needs some care and all care needs some justice. They're like uh, two sides of the same coin. And uh, virtu uh, sorry, relational ethics, also feminist ethics or ethics of care, draws attention to uh, status quo, its power, power distributions, inequality, and then you can look for, for example, to how a technology or the introduction of some technology propagates that power imbalance, or how on the in the other direction you can use technology to 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 rebalance to empower people who normally wouldn't have power. And now comes the last bit. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so I like relational ethics in a sense that it remedies some of the enlightenment. Um, pitfalls, so to say, because there's more than independence. We are dependent. There's more than relationality because there's also relationships and emotions and, and effects. Uh, also, I wrote recently a bit more about what I write in the book a bit about on uh, learning from indigenous knowledges. So you can argue in a nutshell that um, climate crisis and lots of other things are a result of enlightenment ideals uh, derailed, uh, taken too far, like uh, uh, submit, exploit nature, mm -hmm. and then and then indigenous knowledges uh, would very much stress our relationship to nature, um, the interconnectedness of the plants, the animals, and us. Uh, so I do a bit of a tour of of uh, Southern American, Northern American, African, Asian, Australian indigenous knowledges how they can help us look differently and remedy also some of the uh, pitfalls of the enlightenment. Coming back to the fourth one, the virtue ethics. Um, can you repeat the question, Ben, because it is my favorite, but why again? Um, I think you're just asking uh, why you thought virtue ethics was um, interesting in this context, or, or you yeah. mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that um, you would, you, it's your favorite one almost. Yeah, 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 exactly. It, it's my favorite one because it's it's the hopeful one because it stresses very much the ability of people to learn and to unlearn like bad habits, to learn better habits. This whole this whole habit word is, 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 is from Aristotle. So I believe that virtues are well, nothing really more or less than, than habits that you cultivate. Mm. So if I all the time take my mobile phone and scroll through my uh, social media timeline and I do it often enough, my self-control is corroded, it, it's gone away. On the other end, if I systematically learn myself, teach myself to put it uh, outside of the bedroom and that it, it's not the first thing when I woke up, wake up and the last thing when I go to sleep, then I, form another habit that is more uh, a convivial uh, that's more conducive to i don't know what you want to do else mm -hmm. other stuff uh so that's one thing it's the hopeful one it's the developmental process one virtue ethics and also because uh, it it's a it's a direct way into what professionals the the people involved in development and deployment of technology what they can do themselves mm. and i guess it stresses the autonomy of the individual to you know, make the dictate that direction to, to to make that moral decision, as opposed to it being more like group group think or um, structural. You know, you can almost you can all reflect and have a decision, and you can all change how the world looks. And um, quite often, these things come back to the idea of the good life and flourishing and mm -hmm. uh, these philosophical concepts, but. Um, really, you are in the driving seat in that equation for working out um, how we get there, um, how we create the environment for um, people's flourishing instead of, you know, maybe one person's flourishing <laughs> or at the expense of a thousands or yeah. millions. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, for flourishing is one of the central words for virtue ethics. Uh, Living the good life, I always add to that together, how to live well together. Mm. Because one of the possible misconceptions of virtue ethics is that it's like an individual thing. Well, obviously the virtues live within people, mm -hmm. but the virtues are, yeah, ideally they are uh, they are directed at living well together in the, in the polis, in the, in the city-state, in Aristotle's case, 
for us today, it would be like the European Union is one of the polis uh, of the size of polis that I live in. Maybe big, big polis because I also live in a city. Um, but anyways, it it's, uh, it helps you to think about how do we want to live together well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of outside of the the book, I was wondering with all your experience with um, creating or helping people create products, innovations, um, technology product um, services, and things like that. Do you think we are making a world which is um, prime to to keep getting better, promoting wellness, promoting um, flourishing of of citizens and individuals? Um, are we are we making that future um, that we want to kind of live in with these types of technologies? Like we were talking earlier about AI um, and briefly about large language models, but. Uh, is that the world that we should be living in? Yeah, I already mentioned the the climate crisis, which I think is for many of us, including me, a, a big concern. Like this can go wrong in so many ways, uh, so so very soon already. Uh, and we, that's governments, industry, consumers, but I'm starting with governments uh, for obvious reasons, uh, legislation and policy. We need to do things to... Uh, to uh, prevent or mitigate the worst effects of it, because it is already happening. There are droughts in uh, in, in Spain, etc. All the other examples that you can read about. Uh, the connection to technology. Um, well, AI was not involved in creating the climate crisis. It has not. Uh, can it help us do things differently? Yeah, I guess we need to use. No, we we don't need to, but we could use technology differently. And I think AI is of a special interest. Um, my next book will be about that, I guess. Um, because AI is, in, is, is, is machines for thinking, is machines for words, is machines for conversation, or tools or instruments for, for that. That's, that's the way I, I, I like to think about it. Um, so if we create different AI systems or different algorithms and use them differently, they can help us also to, to think differently about uh, manners, uh, sorry about about topics that are of, of public concern, like how to spend tech, taxpayers' money, what kind of legislations do we need? Um, whereas on the other hand, the example that we spoke about in the beginning, uh, the hundreds or thousands of fake news and misinformation that uh, AI bots can uh, can release on the internet, um, they're unhelpful in facilitating uh, good conversations about important topics. By the way, I forgot to say uh, a while back when we talk about virtue ethics, uh, Shannon Veller, she wrote the book Technology and the Virtues, and that has really inspired me to to, to write my own book. Um, she does a great job in uh, in revitalizing virtue ethics in the domain of technology development. So, yeah. Yeah, so um, you were talking about technology does it help to improve the world does it on the other hand does or does it work in the other direction mm-hmm. it can work in both directions um if if there's no good legislation if there's no not enough wisdom within the industry uh, then there are huge risks of ais uh, into the world that will uh pollute very much all the conversations that we can have on um on on topics that matter uh yeah and the, the link to what I just said of Shannon Veller and her book, Technology and the Virtues. She talks about civility. And um, I guess that in British English, civility means something like politeness, but she uses it differently in the sense of uh, the ability and indeed the virtue of people to to come together and discuss matter, uh, discuss matters that matter, and then to come to uh, um, to action uh, to, to, to solve real problems. And I like that very much, uh, the idea of, uh, using AI to facilitate that kind of civility. Yeah, yeah. So you, we could, I mean, hopefully, this is the the fear, right? That we we creating these uh, lonely bubbles for individuals to live in. But you're stipulating that we could hopefully harness this technology for bringing people together, um, having direct action, uh, more local communities, that sort of thing. Yeah. And there was one thing more that I wanted to say about it, just remembering uh, it must have been two or three years ago. I can send you the link if I can. Yeah, I can find it. Mm. It was a podcast interview between uh, Azim Azar and uh, David Runciman. 
they were talking about artificial intelligence and then uh, David Runciman, uh, political science background, I think, he, he was drawing attention not so much to the intelligence bit of AI, but to the artificial part of AI, where we're saying, well, we need to worry more about the artificial. And then he explained what he meant with that, like the artificial is there already, has been there for a couple of centuries, because that is like uh, the nation state and it's the corporation with limited liability and they can do enormous things. Mm. Uh, and that's artificial in a sense. It's more than uh, a one person or a group, a normal group of people can do. It can be uh, multiplied thousand million fold. And, and in that sense, bringing that back to the uh, discussion on, on AI, let's worry about the artificial bit of it. Um, I think the example of the AI bots spewing out uh, fake news is already an example of that. Mm. And here comes one of my uh, uh, themes that I often want to talk about is making stereotypes. You can say that in the US, United States, corporations can do anything that is not strictly illegal. And even if it is illegal, they pay lawyers to just do it. So the corporations have like big, big power and the state not so much. Uh, And that leads to AI yeah, totally promoting uh, consumerism mm-hmm. and neoliberalism. So ads, uh, goods, uh, well, <laughs> all the things that you can that you can order at Amazon, etc., mm. and all the ads that are sold f- uh, via Facebook, etc. The other stereotype would be like China, where the state has like too much power um, and can do anything. Well, yeah, yeah, very much mm. anything. Mm. To, to control, to monitor, to control its people, uh, its citizens. And um, and their AI takes the form, for example, of cameras everywhere, social credit system, etc. And then to make the story complete, I'm imagining something else where the corporations don't have too, mon- too much power and also the state doesn't have too much power, but citizenship, the citizens or civic uh, stakeholders, a society, uh, ha- has power as well, and I think the European Union and um, mm. uh, is making plans for such things that are in between corporations too much power and state too much power. Mm. But that, that, that we'll see. But that's one of the directions in which I guess I have hope for uh, uh, a more positive, more helpful deployment of technologies. So, Mark, um, we've already answered some of this. Uh, in the previous question, I think. Um, but the last question we always ask on the podcast um, is what scares you and what excites you about living in a world with this, you know, this technologically mediated future? Mm. Yeah, what scares me is uh, many of these big industries that exacerbate uh, the climate crisis. I don't have to spell them out, but you can think of the fossil industry, etc., etc. Um yeah, that reasonably scares me. What excites me is um, finding ways out of uh, what I politely call a derailed uh, neoliberalism. Uh, are there al- are there alternatives? So Kate Soper wrote a book. Uh, what is it called? Kate Soper's book, Post Growth: Living for Alternative Hedonism. There's post-growth, this paradigm of can we do the same or even better mm-hmm. with less production, with less consumption. So I think, yeah, I find that exciting to help um, think of alternatives um, that consume less, that produce less, that that pollute less, and that are at least as much fun. Yeah. Because, is- yeah, if you were to choose between ordering more and more packets to Amazon... Or, or, or having a picnic with friends in the park, you would, I don't know what you would, would choose, but yeah, a picnic in the park sounds nice because, and then, yeah, then we need uh, uh, to, to protect the, 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 the trees that we have in these parks. And then we need to find ways to make time for friendships, for mm. relationships. No, we'll just take another Amazon fulfillment center on the park. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Actually, that that is being discussed now in in the outskirts of Amsterdam, where there's agriculture, 
the last bit of agriculture that is there and it's even uh, bioorganic and uh, people have small plots of land there and they, they, they come there uh, in, in, in uh, uh, out of the city and yes a distribution center that that is currently being discussed so yeah it's it's these questions and uh, uh, what excites me is uh, uh, with also with with colleagues of mine at uh, at TNO to work on the uh, on, on on that mm. alternatives for um, for some of the uh, how, how would I say that to work on positive uh, projects and positive outcomes. Awesome, thank you, Mark. Um, <clears throat> thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. If people want to find out about you, find you, buy your book. How do they do that? They can go to. Uh, uh, Ethics for people who work in tech.com. That's the book. No, that's not the book. That's the website that the company's the book, but there you can find the book. Or they can go to uh, my personal page, which is marksteen.nl, and Mark is uh, spelled with a C at the end. And if they're interested in the work of uh, the organization where I work, TNO, it's tno.nl. Wicked. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again to Mark for spending his time and energy with us. I'm still in the process of finishing off his book, so I'll put up a review on the Patreon uh, as soon as that's ready. One of the things that has resonated with me so far in the book is this idea of types of knowledges, which we touched on in the podcast, and how to think about those things in terms of their effect on society and therefore how they are related to ethics in that way. If you'd like to hear more about things like this, check out our episodes on the podcast machine-ethics.net. And if you can, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. One of the things I'm appreciating at the moment is the absolute acceleration of some of the LLMs, uh, the large language model stuff that's happening in the media, along with some of the previous things around stable diffusion and the image models and how they are going through the courts and all that sort of thing. Um, although this podcast isn't necessarily a news podcast or a uh, news show specifically, um, we will endeavour to obviously cover some of that stuff with our interviewees in future and um, hopefully keep you up to date with the kind of some of that bleeding edge stuff as well. Thanks for bearing with us and hope you enjoyed.